Colossians 1, starting in verse 24, and I'm actually going to read into chapter 2 a little bit because it's part of a larger section, so a little context for you. Actually, maybe I'll start in verse 23. Um, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And that's sort of the the key phrase that starts this next section. He's going to talk about the fact that he has become a minister of this gospel. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray. Father, this refrain that keeps going through this, these words that keep coming in this passage are about understanding and knowledge. And so I ask that you would be granting us understanding and knowledge this morning that we might uh, behold this great mystery, that we might come to a fuller understanding of this mystery of Christ in us. We ask that you would do this uh, for your glory and for our good, that we might have a, a greater experience of the communion we have with you in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I don't know why I was asked to do this, but I was, uh, me and my girlfriend at the time, there you go, Amy, uh, <laughs> planned retreat. We were two single people, and our singles ministry was going to have a retreat, and so uh, we, decided, we were the two people who were taking the lead in planning this retreat, and we both had a great affection and appreciation for one of the elders in the church by the name of Lenny Spitali. Lenny was an interesting character. If you saw the old pictures of Lenny, he was an old hippie. You know, this, this short guy with really long hair and this humongous mustache. 
And uh, he was a rebellious guy, and he ended up in prison. And that is where Christ found him. And after he got out of prison, that is where Christ sent him again. Because Lenny was involved in prison ministry. And uh, I had the privilege of working side by side with him in the, kind of the same office that he worked out of. I didn't go into the prisons with him. But we just appreciated how God had worked in this man. And so he's the one that we asked to, to teach us at this retreat. I believe I was in my senior year of college at the time. And, uh, and during one of the breaks, we were supposed to read from Colossians. And I came upon this passage. And as a very young Christian, I was stumped. I came to that question of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And I was stumped. I'm glad I found an answer to the question of what that means. That's really what is at the heart of uh, this passage and the sermon this morning. But also the question of this suffering, this filling up this lack. What does that, what do glory and hope have to do with that? What do glory and hope have to do with suffering? That's really at the heart of all of this. So let's begin to turn to it and see. Our big idea this morning is that our glorious hope in Christ is revealed, in a sense, through Suffering. First part of this is that Jesus sends out servants to suffer. Or to put it this another way, suffering is an ordinary part of ministry. As I noted when I was reading the text, Paul ended the previous paragraph by saying that he became a servant of the gospel and as I mentioned, he's about to develop this in the next few paragraphs. But you'd think, he's an apostle. Gospel ministry sounds glorious. And what Paul is going to do is say, it ain't what you might think it is. It's not glorious. Joan will tell us that, I think, that life on the mission field is not always glorious. There are moments when it breaks through and you're just filled with incredible, unspeakable joy, but a lot of it is not glorious. It stretches our sense of hope. Paul begins with a passage, a statement that for many of us may not make sense. I rejoice in my sufferings. We would expect to see, I rejoice in my success. I rejoice in in seeing the conversions. I rejoice in seeing new churches planted. We understand that, and I'm sure he rejoiced when those things happened. But he also rejoiced in his sufferings. That there were things in the flesh, he says, I fill up in my flesh, that same word that, that Paul uses to describe the sufferings of Jesus. Okay, Remember he used soma when he talked about um, the church. He's going to do that same thing here when he mentions the church again, the body. Again, it's going to be soma. And here, just as it was for Jesus, it was, this, it was sarks, the weakness of the body, the frailty of the body. And so he's suffering in his weakness, in his humanity, 
He's suffering. And he's rejoicing as he does it. As we heard from 2 Corinthians 11, he endured beatings, shipwrecks, hunger, and so much more. As Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, he's in prison. There no doubt was the prospect, the threat, the the shadow of execution lingering over his head. I've never lived with that. I don't know what that feels like for a man to know that he may die soon. At an executioner's hand. And so Paul is living not just with physical suffering, but he's also living with some probably some emotional suffering, and he's rejoicing. But here's the question. Were the Colossian Christians like the Corinthian Christians? The Corinthians were embarrassed by his suffering. They thought that that discredited Paul as an apostle. It made him someone of very little account. He didn't stack up to the super apostles. Was there a similar kind of mindset there that, that they might look down upon Paul? Were they looking down upon Epaphras, the man who brought the gospel to them in the first place, because he was not spectacular, because he was probably ordinary, mediocre, mundane, not dynamic, like those guys on TV? Yeah, they didn't have TV then. But you know, these, like these new guys who are coming into town that were starting to win over some of the people and cause some confusion within the church in Colossae. Are we embarrassed by Paul's sufferings? Are we caught up in the dynamic and the exciting and embarrassed by the God of the mundane? He suffered in the flesh, filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's speaking as if the afflictions of Christ aren't complete. And so, remember, I was Roman Catholic before my conversion. And and so to hear this sense of Christ's work is insufficient really rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, what is going on here? And in fact... This is one of the passages used by Rome to to teach this idea that the saints in their suffering and in their obedience add to the treasury of merit from which people like you and me, mere mortals, draw upon through the use of indulgences and things like that. Okay? Is that what Paul is saying? That he's, that there's this big treasury of merit and he's chipping some in with his sufferings? Is he filling up because there's not enough of, from the work of Christ to, to fully save God's people? Is that what he's saying? Let's go back to Augustine. Oh, that the church would have listened to Augustine on this. Though we brethren die for brethren, Yet there is no blood 
of any martyr that is poured out for the remission of sins. This Christ did for us. John Calvin says essentially the same thing, that we do not give the price of redemption. Part of what's going on here is that he uses a different word. He suffers, but Christ was afflicted. He's using this to draw out the distinction between what Christ has done for our our salvation that he's already talked about and the sufferings that he is experiencing at this point in time. It's, It's like what Christ experienced because both were in the flesh, but there's something incredibly significantly different about them. Christ purchased our salvation. He died for the forgiveness of our sin. But what Paul is suffering for, as Calvin notes, is for the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus dies so there is a gospel. Paul suffers for the spreading of that gospel. That's very different. Christ did not suffer in his flesh, to proclaim the gospel to all of the nations, he sends his servants to suffer in the flesh to proclaim the gospel in all of the nations. So that's what's lacking. Not the merit of Christ, but the proclamation of the gospel. John Piper, well, actually... um, we see this as well, and Paul talking about this in 2 Timothy 2. I'll get the piper in a moment. I jumped ahead of myself. Therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so, that using the sound principles of biblical interpretation, we use a, a clear passage to interpret an unclear passage. We should use 2 Timothy 2.10 to help us understand Colossians 1.25. He suffered for the sake of the elect so they could obtain the salvation that is found only in Christ. And so what Calvin says is a right understanding of this passage. Christ purchased our salvation. Paul suffers to proclaim that that salvation. John Piper is dead on in his book, which is our book of the month this month, filling up the afflictions of Christ and saying that suffering is the means the message uses. That's the means God uses to spread the message. It's our suffering. Let's look at church history, not just Paul, not just Stephen, and not just Peter and the other apostles, uh, of which 11 were martyred, John Huss, declared to be a heretic, burned at the stake for the cause of the gospel. Martin Luther, similar to Paul, living with a bounty on his head, never knowing when the soldiers might come for him, suffering because of the gospel. John Calvin, exiled from Geneva for three years on account of of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel. 
Jonathan Edwards, booted from his church in Northampton, the same people that were part were party of, of the Great Awakening at one point decided, we've had enough of this man, be gone with him. And so he becomes a missionary to the Indians at Northbridge. Piper's book mentions John Wycliffe, who lost everything for the great hope of having the the Bible in English, so that people could read it in England. John Patton, who we'll hear more about a little bit later, but going to the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, the New Herberdes, that stretch of islands filled with cannibals. Adoram Judson, one of the early Baptist missionaries, all suffered to bring the gospel to people. It's ordinary. It's unordinary, extraordinary, different, a deviation that we in this country tend not to suffer to make the gospel known. Why is it they were suffering? In part, it was because the dominion of darkness does not slip quietly into the night. The evil one did not say, well, Christ has come, Christ has conquered, all right, I'll just fold up shop and go home and pout in my little corner in the room. No, he continues to rail against the church, seeking to destroy something of Christ's, because he knows he cannot destroy Christ. It is like post-D-Day in the European theater in World War II. That, that war was as good as done, but Germany didn't give up. It continued to fight on. In fact, it won some battles. You know, it looked like the Battle of the Bulge was going to was going to possibly, you know, push the Allies out until there was a, a great reversal that took place. Satan is fighting for his life, so to speak. He hasn't just rolled over and died, but like a a dying lion, he continues to strike. Why did this happen? Note this, Paul says, for your sake. And again, for the sake of his body. The, you know, the, the benefit of your benefit, for the benefit of the body. Paul is not a masochist, which we might think, because he's rejoicing over the fact that he is suffering. But he is one who loves. And he's willing to suffer for the one that he loves. Not just Christ, but the bride of Christ. He suffers so that they might know God and be found in Christ. It's for their good that he suffers. He's not the only one. Think of Philippians chapter 2. So receive him. He's talking about Epaphroditus, a man who visited Paul in prison. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. In other words, don't look down upon those who suffer for the gospel. Honor them, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Do you note the parallel there? To complete what was lacking in your service to me. Someone had to bring that to Paul, and it was Epaphroditus. And he nearly died as a result of that. Were they embarrassed that Paul suffered for them? Did they perhaps uh, think 
that that was inappropriate, that Paul would be suffering for them? Were they too proud for that? Different kind of question. Are we too afraid to suffer? So afraid to suffer that we don't do any gospel good to the church? Are we afraid that our children will suffer, and so we hold them back from doing gospel good from the church? I think those are questions Paul might ask. And Paul would say to us that he counted all things as loss, in part that I may know Him, Christ, and the power of His resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's mindset ought to be our mindset. That's why I think it's so important that quote I had from Doug Kelly in your reflection at the beginning of the worship service this morning. If you didn't read it, go back and ponder that. Okay? Because there are things that God will remove from us, but He was not willing. I'm sorry, He was not, yeah, He was not willing to spare even His only Son. He's a God who gave what was most precious in all of creation and outside of creation. His Son. And so Jesus suffered so that there is good news, and he appoints servants to suffer in order to proclaim that good news. Secondly, we see that Jesus sends out servants to speak. And that is because people need to know what God says. He graciously sends out servants to speak. Now, Paul may have been a martyr, but Paul did not have a martyr complex. He had a mission. And he pursued that mission. Despite the costs to himself. He had this mission as a stewardship from God. This word points to the idea of it being God's management under God's direction, an arrangement, a plan or order. God was at work designating Paul, setting Paul out with a purpose and a plan. It wasn't just, eh, see what you can do, Paul. But he's going to lead him and guide him through all of that. We see that even at the instant of his conversion in Acts 9. When Ananias is told that he has to go and pray for this guy Paul, and he's all afraid, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the beginning, was the idea that Paul must suffer for the sake of God's name to bring the message of God to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. And so we see here Paul reflecting that reality because he says that he's a stewardship from God to make the word of God fully known. In other words, to know the Son of God. You must know the word of God. It is not something that happens overnight. There's no matrix download, you know, or a little app in your head, okay, so that suddenly, yeah, my wife's going, no, no, it's okay. there's no, there's no little, you know, iPhone app. Now I know the word of God completely. 
It is years of reading and rereading and meditating upon and listening to sermons and listening to the Bible on CD, if you're able to do that in your work commute or at home. There are various ways to do this. But Paul's mission was to make the Word of God not partially known to them, fully known to them. He had to lay it all out. Not part of it. Okay? They needed to know all of it. We need to know all of it fully because our spiritual health depends upon gaining this knowledge from God. And so we have to know the indicatives and the imperatives, not just one or the other. We have to know the promises of God and the warnings of God, not one or the other. We have to know the Old Testament and the New Testament, not one or the other. We need to know the simple things in the Scriptures and the complex things in the Scriptures, even though each of us will gravitate towards one of those two. Why? Because there was a mystery that was hidden that has now been revealed to his saints. This doesn't mean that God didn't reveal anything in the Old Testament. It means that God didn't reveal everything in the Old Testament. We believe in the progress of redemption. Sorry, of revelation as well as redemption. God, God, you know, over time was giving more and more information so that their body of knowledge and their understanding was growing, but there were some significant things that they didn't have that suddenly have come to fruition in Christ, that the, that the, the mystery is now revealed. That God has revealed this thing that was once hidden. Things that were obscure in the revelation of the Old Testament have now come into fullness in Christ. This mystery was not made known just to the Jews, but he also says to the Gentiles. The universality of the gospel is revealed once again here by Paul. So now the obscurity is gone. The fullness has come. But again, it's not revealed to everybody, but he says it reveals it to the saints. Okay, What does that mean? That means that while the Bible is there for anybody to read thanks to people like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and so many others, uh, people like Joan, okay, our friend Mary Lou. Okay, Although it's there, again, God has to shine the light, his light, into their hearts so they can understand it. That's what Paul's talking about. God reveals it that way to the saints. They're the only ones that have it revealed in that way. The saints. And again, this idea of the sovereignty of God in this, God chose to make it known. No one forced it from His hand. No one demanded it from Him. He freely made it known. He determines what He makes known and to whom He makes it known. And so God is sovereign over revelation or inspiration of Scripture, but also the illumination of Scripture. 
Let us remember that what we looked at last week, particularly in the parallel passages in Ephesians, that unregenerate man lives in darkness. He has no light of revelation. Even natural revelation is not sufficient for him. He cannot see the truth of it. He's blind to the reality of God, and he makes up things like evolution and the Big Bang and who knows. Removes God from the equation. And so Jesus sends servants to make the Word of God fully known to the saints. Third, last thing this morning, is that Jesus supports us with the hope of glory. Now remember, I mentioned that suffering is not all that glorious. Because we tend not to look at a, a person who is suffering and go, I want to be like that guy. Man, look at the light just shine. Ah, okay. And when we're suffering, we tend to be holding on to hope like it's about to escape us. And so what does this have to do with hope and with glory? Paul says that this mystery which God has now revealed is rich in glory. The riches of glory. It's weighty. It's full of weight. But what is the mystery? And Paul says these astounding words. Christ in you. Not only are we, as Paul says numerous times, in Christ meaning united to Christ. So not only are we united to Christ, but Paul said that he's also in us. He dwells in us as a foretaste of that which is to come. Now you see, in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people. Okay, I'm going to make a, a distinction here. I mean, you know, he was there, you know, in the Exodus. He's, he's in the pillar of cloud and fire, okay? And then, you know, he's uh, dwelling among them in the tabernacle. And finally, you know, that which it points to is the temple. And so he's among his people. But, but there's a significant shift that takes place. Because now, now in the new covenant, God is not just among his people. He dwells in his people. Personally, and corporately, we as members of the new temple, the living temple, are indwelt by the Spirit of God, which means that Christ dwells in us. That's a mystery. Okay? So this is a significant shift in the progress of redemption between the old covenant and the new. In other words, we are not alone Though we may suffer, though we may be mediocre Christians or ministers of the gospel, it was this that sustained John Patton, that Presbyterian missionary to the cannibals in the South Pacific. Those of you who don't know about John Patton, he was very successful in urban ministry. In fact, his pastor, uh, that he, the senior pastor, told him, don't go. Don't go to the cannibals because you're, you're obviously you're so successful here that, that God wants you to stay here. 
And besides, you don't want to end up in the belly of the cannibals like those two other guys, Williams and I can't remember the other guy's name. You know, within hours of landing and getting off the boat, they were killed and consumed by the cannibals. Okay? Don't go and do that. That'd be foolish. You're doing such good stuff here. He goes with his wife, who is pregnant. Within months of arriving there, she dies and the newborn baby dies. He has to dig their own graves while he's making sure that they're not coming for him. For four years, he basically proclaims the gospel when he's not running for his life. Because there were many times when they tried to kill him and he had to plead for his life, so to speak. And eventually he's forced to leave that small island. But he went back to another island. An island that, after decades of ministry, was overwhelmingly converted to Christ. Unfortunately, he didn't bury his second wife and children there. But he continued to experience those moments when people are coming to kill him. What sustained him? He said it was the promise that is in the Great Commission. Go into all the worlds, making this as you. Yeah, sorry. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That reality of Christ with him is what sustained him in the midst of that suffering, that persecution, that fear. He kept going back to Christ is in me. I have hope. And that though I may die today, I will be with Jesus in the next instant. And so it was the thing that sustained him and strengthened him in the midst of the hardship that he experienced in order to make the gospel known amongst the cannibals. This is the hope of glory. We have hope of a glorious future, of personal glory because of Christ. And just like as I've said, our, our righteousness is an alien righteousness. It doesn't belong to us. Our, our, our holiness is an alien holiness. It doesn't belong to us. Our glory is going to be an alien glory because it initially belongs to Jesus. But he gives it to us. And so we're going to be glorious after death even before we receive our resurrected bodies, but then even when we receive those, we'll be glorious. We have this hope of a weightiness instead of the insignificance, the lightness, so to speak, of our earthly existence, which is like a vapor. This hope of glory. Paul touches upon it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. One of these days we're going to go to 1 Timothy. I like that phrase. It's one of his the things that structure that book. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Okay? He toils, he strives, because his hope is set on the living God. And he defines him further as, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul talks about this again, Romans 5. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That hope of glory is part of what sustained even the Apostle Paul as he suffered for the sake of the gospel. That hope and that glory are what ought to sustain us through the suffering that we experience, particularly as we make known the treasure of Christ. And in fact, it's often through our suffering that we most clearly communicate the glory of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. It is not in our success. It is not in our self-sufficiency. It is not in our having our act together. It is not in being prosperous and rich and healthy. It is in our weakness and suffering that the glories of Christ stream most fully from us to a world that needs to see that it is not about us, but it is about Him. So in this present life, the experience of a servant of Christ is rarely one of personal glory. It is often one of suffering on account of the gospel for the benefit of the church. God's servants suffer to make the mystery of God fully known to those who believe. Our hope and glory is rooted in Christ, not ourselves. Our hope is certain if Christ lives in us. And one sign of that is not shying away from the suffering because he gives us strength and courage to face it. And in this season of Advent, we should remember not only the incarnated, incarnated, yeah, but also the indwelling Christ. Let's pray. Father, it should bring us to a place of awe to think that the Holy Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the righteous Son of God, not only is for us, but also is in us that we are holy ground because He is present. That we be humble, recognizing how little we deserve that. Help us to mull that over in the days to come. Help us to go back to that Christ in us, Christ in me. That we would have a a greater sense of the power that is ours, just as, as Paul prayed for the Colossians. That we have a greater sense of the knowledge and the wisdom that is ours. That we would be more aware of our identity in Christ and therefore growing in our sanctification in Christ. Father, help 
help us to work all this out. To understand it. And to, to cry out that uh, you would be helping us to manifest it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.